0: DW. Inside Europe.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's program, mystery incursion into Russia. Could this be the start of something bigger? They're
2: hoping that in some small way they can contribute to the downfall of the Putin regime. These are not independent forces, they are controlled by Ukrainian military intelligence. They rely on the Ukrainians for weapons and support and such like.
1: Landslide, but no majority. How Greece's conservatives hope to go it alone. Turkey election runoff. Erdogan's rival faces an uphill battle. And unlikely firefighters. How the European Patent Office is helping communities prepare for another summer of wildfires. Those stories and more coming up on the programme. There's been much speculation this week over whether Ukraine's long-awaited counter-offensive against Russia could actually already be underway. An incursion across Russia's border from the Ukrainian side by two mysterious groups of anti-Kremlin fighters has sparked a strong rebuke from Moscow. Kyiv has denied it was behind the penetration of the joint border near the Russian city of Belgorod. Russia's defence ministry said the fighters used Western-made military hardware and warned that future attacks would be dealt with extremely harshly. So, was this the first sign that Ukraine is set to further escalate the 16-month-long war? My colleague, Nick Martin, has been investigating for us. As
3: Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky landed back in Kyiv after the G7 talks in Japan last weekend, fighters from the Ukrainian side of the border with Russia began an assault on the Russian region of Belgorod. Kyiv has denied any role in what was the most serious incursion on Russian territory since Moscow's forces launched their invasion of Ukraine in February last year. It said the attack was carried out by Russian citizens. Two pro-Ukraine groups claimed responsibility, one of them released a video appealing to the Russian population.
4: We
5: are Russians just like you. We are people just like you. We want our children to grow up in peace and be free people, so that they can travel, study and just be happy in a free country. But this has no place in Putin's Russia, rotten from corruption, lies, censorship, restrictions on freedom and repression.
3: Despite Kyiv's denials, Mark Galliotti, the head of the London-based consultancy Mayak Intelligence, said the incursion was almost certainly coordinated with Ukraine's military.
2: These Russian volunteer forces, they cover a whole variety of different political perspectives. There are liberals and anarchists all the way through to neo-Nazis. And in their own way, they all have a reason for wanting to see the current Russian regime fall. They're hoping that In some small way, they can contribute to the downfall of the Putin regime. These are not independent forces. They are controlled by Ukrainian military intelligence. They rely on the Ukrainians for weapons and support and such like.
3: The incursion happened far from the epicentre of fighting in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region and around 100 miles from the front lines in the northern Kharkiv region. While the attack probably doesn't mark the start of Ukraine's counteroffensive, Gagliotti said this kind of activity probably means it's close. This is probably more than anything else what in the military terms would be
2: called a shaping operation, preparing the battlefield for the inevitable and probably looming Ukrainian counteroffensive. This is really a chance to do two things. One is to rattle the Russians, but secondly, force the Russians to disperse their troops to move some of their reinforcements towards Belgorod region, hopefully opening up areas for a major attack in the next week or so.
3: DW's Russia analyst Konstantin Egard said while the incursion wasn't a serious attack, it will have dealt a huge psychological blow to Russian President Vladimir Putin.
6: It is an operation that shows we can break the Russian border, we can destroy border posts, we can shoot up your military, and we can retreat. And that means he can do nothing about us. This message will spread well beyond Belgorod, across Russia, in the mid-level of Russian bureaucracy, which runs Russia on Putin's behalf. And they will be thinking, "Mm, well,
4: maybe this regime is not as strong as we thought it was.
3: Russia, meanwhile, has built sprawling fortifications – ...all along the 800-mile front, awaiting Ukraine's next move. (laughs) Kiev will aim to maximise Russian losses with the help of NATO weapons... ...and troops freshly trained by the West. Retired U.S. Special Forces operative Liam Collins... ...who is the founding director of the Modern War Institute at West Point in New York said despite suffering heavy losses, Ukraine's military is in a much better shape than at the start of the war.
7: Look at the beginning, right? Probably 50% of the missiles and rockets that were fired into Ukraine went through, and now 80 to 90% of them or more are getting shot down with improved air defense systems that they have. They have these HIMAR rocket systems that can hit Russian command and control nodes and supply positions. So in some ways, this continued aid has made them more capable than they were at the beginning of the war.
3: Meanwhile, Yevgeny Pogosin, the founder of Russia's Wagner Mercenary Group, has issued a fresh warning to Putin. He said Russia could face a revolution like those in 1917, unless it gets serious about fighting the war. In an interview posted to his Telegram channel, he said the Kremlin needed to mobilize hundreds of thousands more fighters and to gear the economy exclusively to war nick martin dw
1: now after the election is before the election and that is not just the case in turkey this week more on that later but in greece as well Last weekend, Greece's incumbent Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis and his centre-right Democracy Now! party secured 40% of the vote, a significant victory under the proportional representation system in place, but not quite enough to allow them to govern alone. Mitsotakis declined to hold coalition talks and is instead hoping that a second election in June will deliver him the majority he needs. To find out more about what's happening in Greece, I spoke to Yeohios Samaras, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at King's College London. What, I asked, was at stake in these elections in terms of democracy in Greece?
7: So Mitsotakis managed to secure this win because he um, apparently is approved by the Greek public because of his economic policy, because of his handling of the post-pandemic era. But when it comes to human rights, I think that Greece will probably face uncertainty in the next four years, because now Mitsotakis has a mandate to proceed with, I would say, more brave um, decisions, related, of course, to aspects that have been quite controversial. So in the past four years, we have seen illegal pushbacks. We have seen the wiretapping scandal. Um, We have seen financial corruption. What does this mean for the next four years? I think that the government will continue down the same path. And this could, of course, have an impact on the quality of democracy.
1: You mentioned democratic backsliding. Now, a very, very clear indication of that came at the beginning of this month when Reporters Without Borders released their annual World Press Freedom Index. Greece is now at the bottom in terms of European countries. There is no European country that scores lower than Greece in terms of press freedom. And this was In part due to the spyware scandal, which saw state agencies spying on journalists, opposition politicians, activists, and so on. Now, this all happened on Prime Minister Mitsotakis's watch. Were you surprised that there wasn't more anger about that at the ballot box? It turns out that
7: those issues didn't really matter to voters, and I'm not going, of course, to blame voters for making you know decisions. I can tell that people are. Not, of course, able to pay attention to all of those developments related to the wiretapping scandal or better, you know, understand what happened in the past two years. So I would often speak to voters, Greek voters, and they will imply that we're all being surveilled in the era of social media. So there has been a normalization of the scandal. Of course, would you mention, Kate, about the quality of press and freedom of press in Greece, which uh, is indeed lacking behind most European nations, it's quite accurate. And I will highlight an example about the quality of uh, press in Greece. A few days ago, actually on the 19th of May, the New York Times published a fascinating uh, report accompanied by a video which shows that on the Greek island of Lesbos, uh, illegal pushbacks took place uh, in mid-April. Uh, the video shows the whole process. The fact that New York Times published this resulted, of course, in extreme coverage from most international media. If you look at leading Greek newspapers and media, there was no mention of this.
1: Mm let's talk about, well, the left and the right. It's a two-part question, really. Let's start with the the left wing. Uh, We had Syriza, founded in 2012 at the height of Greece's sovereign debt crisis, coming in with just 20%, which was a result that it was very, very disappointed with. Are people becoming disenchanted with the left in Greece? And if so, why?
7: I don't think that Greeks are tired of the left. If we look at the combined percentage of all left-wing parties, it exceeds 40%, which shows that a united left could easily, of course, compete against democracy. But I use the word united because there is no unity in the Greek left. When it comes to Syriza though, Syriza has failed to adopt uh, a strategy. Syriza failed to use, I would say, a narrative to tackle new democracy. The leader of Syriza, Alexis Tsipras, continuously attempted to convince voters that he is the one who can lead Greece by claiming that Mitsotakis is evil. That is not really an argument. You need the rhetoric. You need a narrative. And based, of course, on what happened in 2015 when Syriza was elected and managed to form a government, it was a protest vote. and. Eight years later, Syriza still perceives, of course, its entity as a party that will always act as a protest vote. But that wasn't the case because voters decided to turn their backs to Syriza and choose other options like PASOK. Left-wing voters feel let down by Syriza at the moment. And without a strong leadership, I don't see a future for Syriza in Greek politics. Of course, Tsipras might step down soon. but. Syriza is Tsipras, and Tsipras, of course, has shaped Syriza. So we are about to face a prolonged crisis for the Greek left.
1: I wanted also to touch on the far right. Now, the notorious neo-fascist party Golden Dawn was banned from taking part in these elections, having previously been found guilty of being a criminal organisation. Nevertheless, that didn't actually stop figures associated with Golden Dawn from getting on the ballot by other means. Can you tell me a little bit about how the far right is organising in Greece at the moment and whether or not it still poses a substantial threat?
7: I would say that the Greek far-right is currently in, uh, in a state of once again reorganizing itself in order to prepare for the next steps. And of course, it's um, the elephant in the room, but new democracy has absorbed the percentage of far-right voters in the past 45 years. And the same, of course, happened with this election. So I think that the far-right has a very strong presence in the Greek parliament, not too strong. But for now, the extreme right is where it belongs. It's imprisoned and it's for now banned from running in uh, future Greek elections.
1: Georgios Samaras is Assistant Professor of Public Policy at King's College London. Our election coverage continues now as we turn once again to Turkey. This weekend, the high-stakes political runoff, which still has the potential to end President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's 20-year hold on power, will take place. Opposition candidate Kamal Kulushta'olu, however, faces an almost impossible balancing act as he tries to appeal to both nationalist voters and his own progressive base. Could Kılıçdoğlu's overtures to Turkish nationalists backfire and help give Erdogan, who is accused of rolling back democracy, his much feared third term? Here's Dorian Jones in Istanbul.
3: In
4: Istanbul's Kadıköy district, a speech of presidential challenger Kamal Olu blasts out from a campaign bus with a large video screen. For voters, it's one of the few ways to hear the challenger, as mainstream TV, under President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's control, refuses to broadcast his speeches. In this speech, Khalidz to vows to return home millions of Syrian refugees and promises to protect the homeland from terrorist threats an unusually aggressive message from the peace-loving Alavi once dubbed the Turkish Gandhi. all sharp pivot away from his initial focus on democracy and Turkey's economic problems is seen as a reaction to Erdogan's first-round success in which he narrowly missed securing the presidency. John Solşikhi is the head of Istanbul's economic research, an opinion poll company.
5: This identity whereby Turkey is strong with many enemies at bay, and that, you know, anything else is secondary to this new position that Erdogan has given the Turkish nation, or the perception of it, at least. So that's the identity that's being preferred over everyday problems. What Erdogan did, his rhetoric was that, you know, we have fought with terrorism, there are great dangers at bay, and we've come a long way, so don't let this be overturned. Don't let this process be reversed. That's why it, it gained a prominent role in the in the campaigns.
4: During his campaign, Erdogan used fake videos showing Kurdish separatist leaders fighting the Turkish state as supporting Kurdish Olu. The videos came as Kurdish Olu received the backing of Turkey's main pro-Kurdish party and its jailed former leader Salatin Demirtas. But that support alienated some supporters of Kılıçdaroğlu's CHP party, claims Attila Yeshalata, an analyst of Global Source Partners.
5: Kılıçdaroğlu's close attention to Kurdish problem, his reception in Kurdish areas, Demirtas, you know, constantly tweeting support for Kılıçdaroğlu, has probably dismayed a lot of CHP voters. That caused a reaction among the nationalist or patriotic wink of CHP. There is, unfortunately, a lot of anti curie sentiment in CHP.
4: Some disgruntled Kılıçdaro supporters are believed to have defected to hardline nationalist presidential candidate Sinan Oan, who secured a surprising 5% of the vote. Owen is now supporting Erdogan in the presidential runoff. But it's unclear what impact it will have, says pollster Selçuky.
5: Now, I'm not sure about Oan's capacity to sway his supporters in one particular direction. He has a mixed support base and I'm not sure if he can sway these people in any one direction regardless of these people's you know, uh, initial inclinations. So I'm not really convinced uh, whether if he can sway his uh, electorate in any one particular
4: direction. <laughs> with Orhan's voters up for grabs, Kılıçdaroğlu is now taking a hard line on security, vowing never to negotiate with Kurdish separatists. But such a move risks alienating key Kurdish voters. And let's say Kılıçdaroğlu has to perform an increasingly difficult balancing act, Warren says in Urne of Politikyol News Portal.
6: Now the bar is much, much higher. He has to convince, first of all, his own voters to go and vote for him, not to lose their hope. So he has to start all over again. And he has to convince others. Also, he has to convince Sinanawan, the nationalist water side, of course. And uh, he has to keep the Kurds on his side. (laughs) So this is a very delicate balance. It's not impossible, but it's much, much more difficult than the first round.
4: But with only a few days left of campaigning, time is against Kılıçdaroğlu as he seeks to close the gap on Erdogan as he performs an increasingly tricky political balancing act. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul.
1: And for the latest information on the Turkish elections, you can download DW's Breaking News app or follow DW on Twitter. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. The sound of firefighters attempting to contain a wildfire in northeastern Spain last year. More than 830,000 hectares of land were destroyed by wildfires across Europe in 2022, an occurrence which, as a result of global warming, is likely to become a regular feature of the European summer. In response, the European Patent Office has just launched a new platform to share world-class patent knowledge and information on life and land-saving technologies in the fight against wildfires. I asked the EPO's Chief Sustainability Officer, Roberta Romano-Gerch, to imagine that I was a councillor in a municipality in southern France
8: looking to use this new portal. So basically, platform is is publicly available. It's, it's on our internet site um, as firefighting technologies. So you would just go into the portal, and there you see the four chapters, how the uh, the platform is organized. The The chapters are easy to consult. It's like a web page. And for each chapter, you have a link, which says explore our data sets. So imagine if you are um, in an area and you're looking for really getting well organized for detection and prevention of fires. You may want to look into the data sets, looking at risks analysis, or for example, the one on aerial technologies, like helping detecting and preventing fires, or space observation, or flame retardants. And by just one click, you end up looking into the set of results. Once you do that, you can, through filters, you can select the countries, Uh, where these patents are. You can select the, um, browse through these flame retardant products and get in time to equip yourself with these um, products well before the the fire season breaks. And see really which are the top, top, top emerging technologies in uh, in this area. Same for protective equipment or post-fire restoration if you're in an area that has been pretty much affected the previous year. I'm a chemist by education and I I love this part, really. And I did not know that you can have all this soil stabilization with seeding, um, with soil amendments and stuff like that. So it's really fascinating to go through these patterns and see what the wealth of information is there. Finally, Roberta, maybe I could
1: ask you for your favorite patent on the portal. Was there one that got you
8: really excited? I'm very much interested by the... um, there's one specific one that looks at the forest fire uh, virtual reality training. And so this is really how you best um, train your firefighters without exposing them to real fire. And it's totally new. We know the, uh, the the power of artificial intelligence. And this is a real example of how also artificial intelligence is used for a good purpose. This is an immersive training for fire extinguishing prevention. It's basically based on simulating pre-selected parameters. It throws you in specific scenarios and it's uh, it's like a 3D event. So it seems like you're really living into it. Of course, I've not seen it, in, but I've just read the patents and I think it is a really great example of how emerging technologies can be used uh, to do good.
1: Roberta romano their Chief Sustainability Officer with the European Patent Office, which I found out this week is headquartered in Munich, Germany. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. The AI revolution is here, and even its creators seem fearful of the forces that they have unleashed.
9: My worst fears are that we cause significant, we, the field, the technology, the industry, cause significant harm to the world. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong.
1: So what does this mean for Europe? Can it afford to be left behind?
9: If we don't create the technology ourselves, we depend on the technologies that other builds for
1: us. Should it be harnessing the creative possibilities of new technology? There have been some AI plugins you can use now. So you can ask in a chat form, how do I put this particular kind of pass or reverb on my vocal? And it will tell you how to do it or leading the way with tough new legislation. There are also people on the
6: other side of the Atlantic that look at the EU uh, with hope that these technologies would be regulated.
1: Just some of the questions we'll be exploring over the next 30 minutes in the first instalment of our Digital Futures series. Stay tuned and don't cheat on the capture. Last week, OpenAI founder Sam Altman testified before a US Senate panel. That was him that you heard in that intro just now.
9: I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong.
1: Altman is the man who let the AI genie out of the bottle back in November when he released ChatGPT, a generative artificial intelligence or AI platform that can write emails, essays and software code. Chat, GTP's arrival on the scene spurred a global race to create viable competitors. Already, this new breed of AI has proved itself capable of winning prestigious photography competitions, composing credible philosophy dissertations, writing solid journalistic copy, composing convincing musical fakes, and much, much more besides. Whatever the ethics of the technology, one thing is certain – AI will change the way we live and work in ways that we're only just beginning to imagine. Investors, naturally, want in on the profits. But here in Europe, investors and policymakers alike are showing themselves to be more hesitant than their US and Chinese counterparts. Does the continent risk being left behind? Nick Martin has been looking into it for us.
10: Ziel ist es mit Leam, dann wirklich einen Leuchtturm in in Deutschland und darüber hinaus. Jörg
3: Binart, the president of the German AI Association, speaking at a recent conference. Having watched the United States and China develop large generative AI platforms, Binart and his colleagues want to help create a European equivalent.
10: We wir leben leider immer noch in der Situation, dass das gut ausgebildete Forscher uh,
3: They're trying to raise money to build the digital infrastructure, a supercomputer, that will allow European academics, tech companies and startups to advance the rollout of AI according to European values. On its website, LiAM, short for Large European AI Models, says it hopes to achieve high standards in terms of data protection, transparency and bias. But Binard says policymakers and investors in several European countries are reticent to back his or other budding AI projects.
10: I'm a little bit surprised because other countries are doing so. The UK government really wants to invest close to £1 billion in order to establish a supercomputing centre for AI in Britain. And Germany and Europe are very slowly on this as in many other aspects of technology development, we really would appreciate if people really understand the necessity of these investments in order to stay competitive.
3: Europe is often criticised for failing to develop its own tech giants like Google's Alphabet or Amazon. With AI, policymakers are keen to avoid a repeat of the search engine monopoly, where Google has 90% of the market. But despite conducting a feasibility study for the German government, Berlin and the European Union have so far spurned Liam's request for three to 400 million euros in funding.
9: Europe is still lagging behind, not only in the IROS race, because we somehow lack the mentality to think big.
3: Thomas Ramger, the author of the book Who's Afraid of AI, believes little will change without major reforms to Europe's investing landscape.
9: We don't have the huge venture capital companies. We don't have the huge venture funds. We don't have the venture capital ecosystems we have in the US or in China now. And so any European founder who's trying to build up a large language model or another breakthrough technology in AI is short of money. If you compare the German startups, Aleph Alpha, for example, or Langu, they're talking about, well, maybe raising a couple of tens of millions of euros or dollars versus OpenAI uh, is heading for 10 billions. And OpenAI is the laboratory
3: behind ChatGPT.
0: 2023 is becoming the year of ChatGPT. Its popularity has helped thrust
3: Europe certainly doesn't lack the skills to advance AI. Many European academics end up working for large US, Chinese or Indian tech firms who foresaw the trend and quickly rose to the challenge. Ramgat thinks Europe must gain the ability to transfer the huge amount of AI expertise out of universities into domestic unicorns, the nickname for rapidly growing startups. If
9: we don't create the technology ourselves, we depend on the technologies that other build for us. Which basically means that Europe is not deciding themselves on what kind of technologies they want to use, built on what kind of values. That is not very much in tune with the image we have of ourselves and that is not in tune with the ambition Europe should have. But it's very clear, we lack technological sovereignty.
8: Good afternoon. Dear colleagues, the session is now
3: reopened. The European Union does have a clear AI strategy that seeks to put the bloc at the heart of advancing technologies. But it's still yet to pass the European AI Act that will regulate how the technology is rolled out. After working on the legislation for more than two years, chat GPT's arrival sent EU policymakers back to the drawing board. There are now urgent calls from outside and within the tech sector to halt the rollout of AI for fear that it has already grown too powerful. And what if an authoritarian state like China uses AI not just to keep tabs on its own population, but the rest of us too? Binard from the German AI Association now fears that Brussels could over-regulate the sector.
10: The European AI Act, on one hand, is a chance to make sure that AI follows certain quality standards and that uh, we don't put any AI-related systems in place that potentially could harm people. But we have to make sure that we are not overstretching this, that uh, the regulation does not be uh, so strict that it uh, prohibits further AI development and makes us uh, not competitive.
2: In terms of, kind of investment into the space, I think there will be companies that offer a niche service that will do very well out of this gold rush.
3: David Foster, co-founder of the London-based Applied Data Science Partners, thinks it's possible to proceed with the rollout, but with adequate protections in place.
2: You know, whilst there are calls to do things like pause or halt progress, my opinion, that's fairly unworkable. You know, other actors will be doing this at speed and at scale. So we need to keep pace, but we need to do so in a way that's kind of true to our values. Stay at the forefront of the technology academically and from a technological perspective, but also on the understanding that we're doing it in the right way and responsibly.
3: European investors may well be willing to take more risks once they are sure of the regulatory framework. The European AI Act has now been given the green light by EU parliamentary committees and is expected to be adopted by lawmakers by mid-June. Nick Martin, DW.
1: As we just heard there, much is riding on the EU's AI Act, which is expected to be ratified in just a few weeks' time. Now... Without exaggeration, some 90 percent of everything that I know about this crucial piece of Brussels legislation comes from following the byline of one journalist. His name is Luca Betuzzi and he is digital editor at youractive.com. Naturally, Luca was the first person that I spoke to for this program, and I began by asking him to set out for me and i quote the serious harms that the ai act is aiming to prevent what it identifies as high risk systems from creating
6: the ai act has a whole list of high risk area and use cases so if you take for example uh, education on scientific subjects most of the uh, students are male the algorithm will think well will sort of reproduce that bias and say, okay, we're only going to accept male applicants. And this applies to, for example, recruitment uh, systems that might reproduce uh, racial biases, but there are also uh, risks not related to biases. So, for example, if uh, you don't use a solid enough system for predicting uh, flaws, or energy consumption, it might lead to uh, a lot of pressure on the energy grid. Maybe a uh, part of a city has uh, difficulties with, uh, with crime, then uh, algorithms tend to reproduce that because then you will have more police and uh, more crimes reported. So it, it can really uh, lead to what is called a self-reinforcing cycle.
1: Right. And I mean, just to sort of amplify what you're saying there, you know, here in Germany, very, very recently, we had a, a case where the constitutional court had to step in because two separate police forces were using um, surveillance AI, which was found to have inbuilt racial biases. So effectively, what was happening was predictive policing based partly at least on racial bias. I mean, that, that's, a, that's obviously a, a really sort of scary scenario. What about the sort of the apocalyptic scenarios that are being bandied about at the moment? I mean, it seems almost as if um, every other week you have somebody who's been involved in the creation of AI, particularly large uh, language learning models warning about the potential for machines taking over, that kind of thing. How likely do you see that kind of risk as being? And is that within the scope of the AI Act? Uh,
6: yeah, these are not uh, easy questions. Um, let me just start by saying that predictive policing is being discussed uh, among EU policymakers. So besides these high risk areas, that are also areas uh, where policymakers uh, agree there is no acceptable risk, meaning these practices are banned. Going to this uh, very powerful AI, as someone called them, in the initial uh, AI Act proposal, there was a gap in the sense that the Commission did not envisage systems such as ChatGPT uh, and other uh, large language models that do not have a specific uh, goal. So the legislator interrogated themselves, asking how could this be covered? In the European Parliament, uh, there is a particularly strong position with regards to uh, these large language models, such as ChatGPT, that they should go through some due diligence obligations, but also be vetted by independent experts throughout their life cycle. So. With regards to your question on how likely is an apocalyptic scenario with powerful AI, I think we are only scratching the surface. I think we are yet to fully grasp what AI will mean for us, for society at large. I mean, of course, all the sci-fi movies are very far from how AI is used nowadays, but I would also not underestimate these very powerful uh, models.
1: Right. Okay. And I mean, I'm very, you mentioned ChatGTP. I'm very sort of conscious that one of the, the latest voices to sound the warning bell has been Sam Altman, so OpenAI founder, the company that released ChatGTP and let the genie out of the bottle in many ways. He was testifying only last week in front of a US state Committee. And I wanted to sort of talk to you here about what the US is doing, what it's likely to do, um, how that might differ from Europe and its AI AI Act, and also what kind of um, relationship there might be between Europe and the US in terms of uh, one piece of legislation influencing another. I mean, are there precedents there? How does it all work? Yeah, Sorry, it's a really big one for (laughs) you, Luca. (laughs) It
6: is. Um, So let me just say that in the past we have heard over and over again uh, tech leaders calling for regulation in public and then uh, in private lobbying against regulation. So the US has a very different approach to Europe. Their idea is let's launch a product into the market and then we see if it's safe. In Europe, we go the other way around. You could, of course, say that the U.S. is more innovative. And indeed, there are no big tech companies coming from Europe anytime soon. But it also entails risks, of course. So uh, the U.S. regulatory approach does not envisage horizontal legislation as in Europe uh, with the AI Act and other Uh, product safety legislation. So I think that the EU has proved before and is continuing to prove that um, it it can set up international standards in terms of legislation. This is the so-called Brussels effect. And it relates to the fact that the EU is one of the largest markets in the world. And therefore, to comply with EU standards, uh, you, you either... Um, apply them across the board so also for other markets or you have to take a business decision and and create uh, double standards so different products for different markets there are also people on the other side of the Atlantic that look at the EU uh, with hope that these technologies would be regulated sort of doing the work uh, for them as well and the EU and US are discussing AI and foundation models like ChatGPT in the Trade and Technology Council uh, this month. So th- I think there is progress going on there as well.
1: Luca Bertuzzi there, digital editor for Euroactive.com. Time now, I think, for a reminder that not all digital futures have to be bleak. Technology is, for the moment at least, still very much a tool, and some of its applications are genuinely life-enhancing. In France, for example, a company is launching a new talking credit card. This is big news for the roughly 250 million visually impaired people worldwide, many of whom find themselves targeted by fraudsters because of their disability. With the introduction of talking credit cards, however, that could soon be a thing of the past. John Lawrenson has been tagging along with one of the card's first test users in Paris to find out more.
0: Stephanie Kung's white walking cane glides along a sidewalk as she navigates through a Paris suburb. When you stand in front of Kung, she can see there's something there, but the rest of her sight she lost when she was 12, after a series of operations that didn't go well. Now, as an adult, for Kung everyday situations are often challenging, like buying a sandwich. (laughs)
8: Excuse
0: me. Credit cards are not easy for visually impaired people to use because they can't always see the terminal to know where to insert their card. But the main challenge for blind people is that they can't confirm if the price the retailer keys in is accurate. Until now. In the R&D offices of tech firm Thales, Kung is here to test the company's new talking credit card. It was the French who invented the chip card with its four-digit code security system. Talis is also developing a biometric credit card that can read a user's fingerprint. Pierre Palagion, the company's banking personalization program manager, says the talking card takes this tech one step further. Cette carte est composée non seulement d'une puce de paiement, mais aussi This credit card doesn't only contain a payment chip,
3: but another piece of electronics that enables you to connect it to the user's cell phone. This connection enables the reception via Bluetooth of all the information that's displayed on the card payment terminal.
0: The smartphone then vocalises that transaction through a speaker or headphones in French, English or a number of other languages.
2: The transaction amount is 25 euros.
0: Kung says this could be a very helpful tool.
1: It's useful for visually impaired people like me to know the price we're paying. The cashier tells us, of course, but to be sure, it's good to get confirmation of the amount because we're easy to fool. They can tap in any amount. We wouldn't know.
0: Bruno Gendron, president of the French Blind People's Federation, says that he has been the victim of shopkeeper error. He believes this new technology addresses an important problem indispensable I think it's indispensable. Buying goods or
4: services is part of what it means to be a citizen. A true citizen, when he pays for something, controls what he pays. This new technology will give a lot more independence to visually impaired people because up till now, every time we buy something,
0: we have absolutely no guarantee of how much we're paying. Talus' Pierre Paligion says this is a problem that affects a lot of people.
3: French studies show 9 out of 10 visually impaired people have been victims of shopkeeper fraud or error. There are around 2 million visually impaired people in France, 15 million in Europe, and 250 million worldwide.
0: A first bank in Turkey has already begun offering this new card to its customers. Others in Europe and the Americas will follow soon. John from DW, Meudon, France.
1: Money talks, but we will never ask you for it. If you do want to do something nice for us here at Inside Europe, though, you could, of course, give our podcast a rating, review or even recommend it to a friend. We would also love to hear your ideas for part two of our Digital Futures special. Big shout out here to listener Alvaro Justin, who's already been in touch with some super helpful tips. Please do drop us a line via insideeurope at dw.com. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Last month, a song by an anonymous music producer who used artificial intelligence to impersonate the Canadian rapper Drake went viral and jolted the music industry. The song, which was taken down from streaming services and social media platforms shortly after the record label claimed copyright violations, was a harbinger of the disruptive impact of generative AI tools on the music industry – It also raised a number of legal and creative questions. Is censorship of AI-generated songs the way forward, or can singers benefit from synthetic voices? Our reporter, Ben Batka, explored this new frontier in music at Tallinn Music Week, an annual music and cultural festival in Estonia's capital. (laughs)
4: Hi, my name's Holly, and I'm an artist. That was my
1: voice, but I didn't sing that clip.
11: During a TED Talk last September, multidisciplinary artist Holly Herndon introduced Holly Plus, an AP powered instrument that lets people sing with her own voice in multiple languages. Herndon, an American who lives in Berlin, is an early adopter of music generated by artificial intelligence, or AI.
1: You just heard her perform El Cant de la Sabila which is a traditional song arranged by Maria Arnal in Catalan. Not a language that I speak, and not a vocal tradition that I've trained in. Those melismatic runs are really difficult to hit.
11: (laughs) The rise of generative AI tools, technologies that generate words, images, and music on their own, promise unprecedented opportunities to democratize creativity, and at the same time raise thorny, legal, moral, and creative questions for artists, labels, consumers, and the music industry as a whole. Herndon and some other artists, like Canadian singer-songwriter Grimes, who last month said she'd split 50% royalties on any successful AI-generated song that uses her voice, are embracing AI as both a creative possibility and a potential revenue stream. Other artists are fearful of losing control over their own voices and of the implications for cultural appropriation and digital blackface. Imagine a white artist making it sound as though Snoop Dogg is rapping their words, for example. Beyond that. There is also widespread and well-founded fear that the vast majority of artists will no longer be able to make a living from music, having lost out to competition from AI which may very well have been trained on their own voices without their consent or knowledge people like Grimes and Holly Herndon have established music careers. It's fine for them to then license out their voice because they already have a guaranteed source of income for as long as they make music. That's Gordon Johnston, a Scottish artist and member of art-pop duo Post Coal Prom Queen. Famous musicians have record labels with deep pockets and armies of lawyers that can file takedown requests and get fake songs pulled off their streaming services. For most other artists, however, the situation is very different. Christian Heinmetz is founder and artist manager at Estonian company Gateway Management. Back when Spotify started, maybe within a day there were maybe hundreds of songs that were coming out. 100,000 now, and then Fridays probably it's something like a million, right? So you have to compete with all of that, and now the question is what's the percentage of how many songs of those are created by AI? Earlier this month, Google released a tool that generates music based on text prompts, complete with beats and different instruments in any style. Google says it won't generate music with specific artists or vocals. But what happens when AIs are writing the lyrics and the melody and impersonating a human's wholesale? Is it even possible to flawlessly detect AI-generated music? If so, how should it be labelled? Can machines claim copyright? And what happens if copyrighted material from training data gets incorporated into the generated songs? These are just some of the questions that are beginning to be asked, and the legal answers may be months or even years in the making
2: hey there what 's it like in new york city i 'm a thousand miles away you look so pretty yes you do.
1: There have been some AI plugins you can use now, so you can ask in a chat form how do I put this particular kind of pass or reverb on?" my vocal and it will tell you how to do it. So it's like AI-guided human creativity and I think that is actually going to be one of the most useful things.
11: Lily Haim is the other half of the post-cold prom queen duel. When she's not making music or goes on tour, she experiments with AI-generated music.
0: One, two, three, four. Yeah. Is this the real life? Is this
3: just fantasy?
11: Whilst Hayem is excited by the possibilities of the technology, her partner, Johnston, sounds a warning note. For every tour that we try to book as a small band, there's going to be massive legacy bands who will literally never stop touring, like ABBA are touring as a hologram right now. You'll have the Rolling Stones touring in Filter year 222, like, it's going to be ridiculous. If they're filling up every arena, every venue, there will be no space for new music. So more people than ever will be making music, I think fewer people never will be selling and making a living off of it. The rise of AI, he believes, will democratise the making of music but not the selling of it. Nobody can predict exactly how the AI music revolution will shape music production and consumption over the coming months and years. But it's not hard to imagine that artificial intelligence will forever change the connection between the listener and the human beings performing and writing these songs. Ben Bartke, DW, in Tallinn, Estonia.
8: And with that,
1: we have reached the end of the show, but not the end of our Digital Futures special, which will be back in a second instalment in June to coincide with the passing of the AI Act in Parliament. Once again, if you do have ideas for that episode, please do drop us a line at insideeurope at dw.com. This programme was produced by me, Kate Laycock, with help from the warmly human Nick Martin and sound engineers Siad Abu Sleiman and Jürgen Kuhn. Jürgen, by the way, also human, although freakishly infallible. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn.